0: Lord, we come before you and we give you this time, God, um, this is about you, this is about growing in you and learning about you and about us and I pray that your spirit would teach us all things God all things that we need to know all things that we need to pull from this text to apply to our lives God that you would show us new things about you that you would show us new things about us uh, that you would remind us of things that we need to be reminded of uh, Lord but but we come here with an expectation that we're going to hear from the living God so I pray that you would speak to us fill us with your spirit so that we're able to hear you in Jesus name Amen. All right, so uh, if you've been with us uh, we've been going through first and second Samuel as I mentioned, and, and right now uh, in second Samuel, where we are where David uh, he fled from his son Absalom, if you remember Absalom, he literally stole the throne and David didn't want to cause a civil war right there in Jerusalem uh, and he wasn't holding on to the kingdom he wasn't holding on to his position he knew the crown was God's to give or take, and if God wanted Absalom to have great. So David, he really put the whole situation in God's hands. We see David was surrendered uh, in that way. Uh, And as David flees from Absalom, we see later on, as we found out uh, last week, that Absalom is ultimately killed. He's fallen. Joab throws three spears in him and then ten other guys come and finish him off. So we ended the last chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 18. David had just lost his son and he's in this place of mourning. However, this is an opportunity for David to return as the rightful king of Israel. And in chapter, C, chapter 19, we're going to see the king return to Jerusalem as the rightful king, but he's going to return to a bunch of conflict. And that's the title of this teaching, The King Returns and Conflict Awaits. The King Returns and Conflict Awaits. Just because Absalom's dead doesn't mean all the problems are solved right because Absalom wasn't alone in this he had a bunch of people that he recruited with him to rebel against David so David is going to come back and we're going to see some of the people don't want him back (laughs) some of the people uh they made a decision to follow Absalom for a reason they didn't think David cared for them or whatever the case may be and and you remember Absalom he would sit outside the city gates and he would be there for the people and say hey there's no one here to tend to your needs but i'm here to tend to your needs so there were certain people that rebelled against david and didn't want david to be their king so now david has to come back to jerusalem and deal with some of these people what is he going to do is he going to destroy all the people that rebelled against him, or is he going to reconcile with these people Very tough decisions to make. See, coming home isn't as easy as it sounds. There's issues that David has to deal with as he comes home. And all these decisions are difficult decisions to make. Let's look in 2 Samuel chapter 19, as David continues to mourn over the loss of his son. In 2 Samuel 19 verse 1, it said, And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, The king is grieved for his son. So... What appeared to be a victory was a loss for David. He's mourning over the loss of Absalom because he knows he played a factor in the death of Absalom. All these things were happening because of David's sin against Bathsheba and killing Uriah. You remember the prophecy from 2 Samuel chapter 12 that God told him, hey, look, I forgive you. You're not going to die, but here are your consequences. There's going to be division among your household for the rest of your life. So David knows he, He plays a part in the death of Absalom. And he's so broken over this. He says at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 18. He says if only I had died in your place. David was more concerned about the loss of his son. Than he was about the crown. He makes that very clear. So he continues to mourn. Verse 3 says here. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in the battle. So David made these men who risked their lives for him that that have been with him through thick and thin. He made them feel ashamed like they did something wrong by defeating Absalom. Absalom was out to kill David. Let's not get it twisted and think that Absalom would have had mercy on his father. He was there to dethrone him. He was there to kill him. And these men risked their lives for David only to feel shame for what they did as if they did the wrong thing these guys gave it their all and they weren't encouraged they weren't commended they weren't built up for what they did for david no they were beat down by the way david responded by the way he reacted it's like the absent or indifferent or critical father I tell you, I run into so many issues with different people, and the majority of issues that I find with people and the conflicts, the internal conflicts that they struggle with, it has to do with their relationship with their father. And typically, most of the time, not every time, but most of the time, that father that, who that person has issues with falls into one or three to three categories. Either the father was absent, or he was indifferent, or he was overly critical and that child growing up never felt like they were commended for giving their all they never felt encouraged they never felt affirmed they never felt valued and this is the kind of father that david's being to these men who were like family to him or who are like sons to him who have been following him since way back when king saul went after the, him so we see these men They feel ashamed. And it says in verse 4. But the king covered his face. And the king cried out with a loud voice. Oh my son Absalom. Oh Absalom my son my son. David still hasn't thanked his men. All he can think about. Is the loss of his son. And he mourns over the loss of his son. Because his son was lost because of sin, both because of Absalom's sin and David's sin. This is point number one. The king mourns over the lost. The king mourns over the lost. Now where David played a factor in the loss of his son, we know that Jesus doesn't play a factor in those who choose to be lost, who choose not to be found. And we see that Jesus throughout the Bible, God, Old Testament and the New Testament, the Lord mourns over the lost. His heart breaks over people who are lost, people who don't know him, people who don't recognize him. In Matthew chapter 23, I want to point you to a couple of scriptures here. In Matthew chapter 23, uh, the week of Christ's death, he, he stands overlooking Jerusalem. And he says this, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He says, my heart breaks for you. I, I want to bring you close to my heart, but you've kept your distance. You, you want to be lost. You want to stay in darkness. You love darkness. You want to be your own king. You want to be your own ruler and that crushes me it kills me in ezekiel chapter 18 in ezekiel chapter 18 if you've been going through the chronological bible we were just reading this and this is really ministering to me uh the other day but along the same, same lines is god's heart for those who are lost listen to this In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21, it says, But if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God. And not that he should turn from his ways and live. What God's saying is my heart breaks over the wicked. When the wicked die in their sin. God says my heart is crushed. I have no pleasure in that. I have no pleasure when those who are lost lose their lives. His heart is crushed over those who are lost. Even the wicked. So if God is a king that mourns over the lost. What does that say to us? it says that we should be people that mourn over the loss if we have the same mind if we have the same heart which the bible teaches we're supposed to we should we should be experiencing heartache and heartbreak when we see people that are lost, that when we see people that are going astray, when we see people that are going down a wrong road. Because if we can look at people who are lost and feel nothing, there's something wrong with our hearts. There's something desperately wrong with our hearts. We serve a king who died for the lost and we're called to imitate him. We're called to walk the way that he walked. We're called to have the same mind and have the same heart that he had in that heart breaks over the lost if we're indifferent about people spending eternity in hell that is a huge problem that is a heart problem and if you can just walk past one someone that's lost and not care at all ask god to change your heart because it's a heart issue if we're okay with people just going to hell on a daily basis and we have no drive, no effort, no desire to say something, to speak something into their life, whether they reject you or, or not, all we got to do is speak up. All we got to do is speak out. All we got to do is, is share what we know about the gospel. Whether it's the simplicity of John 3.16 or something deeper, the, Lord heart, the Lord's heart is crushed when He sees... The lost, especially when they lose their lives because of their sin. So the king, he mourns over the loss of this lost son. Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now. We can understand why David is mourning, right? I couldn't imagine losing a son. I know some in our church uh, have experienced that. And, And if I lost my son, I couldn't even imagine how I would feel, whether he rebelled against me or not. But we see that this mourning that David is walking through... It's starting to get a little excessive. And Joab is going to call him out on it. See, David's heart isn't the only broken thing in Israel. The whole nation is broken right now. And he's the king. He needs to tend to the broken heart of his people. He's ruling over a divided nation. And his people need him. They need his care. They need his attention. Sometimes... When we go through these seasons of grieving and mourning, which we need to do in a healthy way, in a spiritual way. But sometimes we can overdo it and we can make the wrongful assumption that in my seasons of mourning and grief, the rest of the world stops. That's not the truth. And David right now, though we can have compassion on him and empathize with him, he lost his son. We're going to see he rightfully gets called out because there's other things that need to be tended to. Namely, these men that fought for him. So Joab calls him out. Look at verse 5. Second Samuel chapter 19, verse 5. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, and the lives of your concubines. Joab speaks hard truth into David's life. He says, you've disgraced your men. You lost one son. But have the right perspective. These men saved your entire family. Okay? Absalom would have probably wiped out your entire family. He already raped all your concubines. He already killed one of your other sons. These men saved the rest of your family. And yes, it cost one of your sons. But you got to look at this through the proper perspective. That son was dangerous. He was going to cause more damage. David was so caught up in his trial. How bad his heart hurt. That he couldn't consider the broad perspective. He couldn't consider... The other people in his life that had been there for him through thick and thin. See, it's natural for us to, when we're walking through trials, especially to focus on what? To focus on me. But guess what? Just because we're going through a trial doesn't make me the center of the universe, right? And yeah, I need to walk through that trial. And if I need to mourn, if I need to grieve or whatever I need to do. But the reality of it is the Bible teaches us, even when we're going through trials, that we're supposed to get outside of ourselves. Let me show it to you. It's Philippians chapter 2. We got to remember the context of this book. Paul is in prison. Okay. He's going through a trial. He's waiting judgment from Caesar Nero during this time. And he says in Philippians chapter 2 as he continues to speak about joy. This truly is the epistle of joy. He says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Paul says this when he's in prison, when he's in chains, when he's going through trials. Who's he thinking about? He's not just thinking about himself. He's thinking about other people. He's getting outside of himself. And this is what Joab is getting at. David, you're being consumed with your emotions right now. But, but time for grieving, time for mourning, it's over. It's done. It's up. There needs to be some form of communication. Some form of com- commendation for the people that fought for you. The text continues... Second Samuel chapter 19, verse 6. And that you love your enemies, the rebuke continues, and hate your friends, for you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants, for today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died, then it would have pleased you well. David's not the only one that's hurt here. Joab's hurt as well. It's like, man... I killed your, he did kill his son, Uh, but I killed your son because he was coming to kill you. Like we did all this stuff for you, David, and, and you act like you would rather all of us die and that Absalom would live. And you know what, if Absalom lived, you probably would have died. So Joab is hurt. His feelings are hurt. He's laid his life down for his king and his king doesn't seem to care at all. The text continues, verse 7. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Joab says you need to go encourage the people right now, these men who have fought for you. David, if you don't start fighting for them now, they're never going to fight for you again. If you don't start fighting for these men right now who have been fighting for you for years, for decades at this point, they are not going to fight for you anymore. See, people that we lead people in general, they need to feel supported, they need to feel comforted, they need to feel cared for, and needed, and accepted, and affirmed. This is so crucial. David wasn't loving on his men. If you don't love them, you'll lose them. It's a reality, and that's what Joab's saying. If you don't love your men, you're going to lose them, David. And he says this, this is kind of wild. He says, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And then he says, and that will be worse for you, and that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. He says, you think you've had it rough so far, Dave. You think life's been difficult so far? It's going to be way harder if this loyal team of 600 that has stuck with you through thick and thin, if they leave you. If they leave you, it's going to be worse for you than the Absalom incident and the Saul incident and the Abner incident and the Ishbosheth incident and all these other things. This is a serious threat. The text continues. Verse eight. Then the king arose and sat in the gate and they told all the people saying, there is this, there is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king. For everyone of Israel had fled to his tent. They didn't flee in fear. Remember, they fled in shame. Everyone went back home. as like, thought we were celebrating a victory. Usually you'd have a big feast after a victory like that, but not them. They go and, and they're just mourning because uh, they don't feel affirmed by their king, by their leader. So finally, the king, he arises. He He listened to the advice of Absalom. He realized the right thing to do in this moment was to put his emotions aside and tend to his people. And there is a reality in leadership that we don't always get the privilege to sulk in our sorrow. Why? Because there's other people going through different things. There's other people that have problems too. And if we get to this point where we're just constantly concerned and constantly focused and constantly obsessing in our minds over the trials that we're going through and over how bad we have it right now it has got to be that wake up call, that, that light bulb that goes on and go, wait a minute. There are other people here that are going through trials and some of them almost guaranteed have it worse than I do. David. Put his emotions aside so that he could do the right thing. He was wise to listen to Absalom or sorry, wise to listen to Joab because Joab was right. David wasn't a king. That thought he had it all figured out. That thought he had all the right answers. That that constantly, yeah, yeah, no, whatever I say goes. No, no. He, he was a king that was humble enough to to listen to the people that were under him, to listen to the people correct him and help him be a better leader, and realize he doesn't have everything figured out. Sometimes he's wrong. Sometimes he makes poor decisions, and it took humility to respond to the correction. From Joab. But it was the wisest decision he could make. So all the people it says. In verse 8. They all came before the king. They all gathered to hear what the king had to say. They had been waiting. Longing for him to acknowledge them. And finally he does. And he helps them feel cared for. He helps them feel tended to. He helps them feel loved on. He's just There for him. And it's so important for us to be there for our people. There for God's people. Especially in a time of crisis. In a time of battles. In a time of warfare. The text continues in verse 9. Now, all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel saying... The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? So there is a dispute among all twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, what do we do now? Some of the people were still for David, and some of the people were against David. And really, namely, the people that were against David are probably thinking, what? If we put... David back on the throne, he's probably going to kill us, right? He's probably just going to wipe us out. So what do we do? We sided with Absalom and Absalom lost, okay? We sided with the loser. Do we switch teams now? Or do we try to raise up another king to fight against David? It's like, oh man, I picked picked the wrong team. And now I'm lost and I don't know what to do. So there's this dispute. There's this debate going on among the people. They don't know how David's going to respond if they put him back on the throne. And the man that they chose, he just got killed. Now, I find it interesting that they're even disputing this. Why? Because these people, at least the ones disputing against David, are under the assumption that it's their responsibility to choose who their leader is. They're under the false assumption that that they're the ones who are supposed to establish the spiritual authority that they want in their life. They're the ones that are supposed to choose their boss. They're the ones that are supposed to choose their king. But it's God the one, is the, God who is the one that puts authority in our lives. It's God who is the one who chooses the king over our lives. Whether we like it or not. In Romans chapter 13 verse 1 it says God places all authority in our lives. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's corrupt. But God's the one who's putting these people in place. And these people somewhere along the line, they lost their way and they forgot that God's the one in authority and and he's going to decide who sits on the throne. Now, these people are disputing with each other, but we see no indication that they ask God. Okay, well, God, we obviously blew it by siding with Absalom. What do you think? Like, who do you think should be the king? Like the same guy that I chose from the beginning. The same guy that was their king. See, so often we fall into these seasons or situations of confusion. And there are these things going on in our mind. These disputes going on. What do I do? Uh, Do I make this decision? Do I make this decision? Do I go down this road? Or do I go down this road? Did you ever ask God? Like, did you ever ask God what what he thought? Because when we ask God, often he brings us clarity. Not every single time. But there's no sense getting into a dispute, whether it's with someone else or even ourselves, if we haven't even asked the Lord what he thinks. The people, at least there's no indication, that they sought God for who he would desire to be king. 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 11. <clears throat> so King David sent Zadok and Abiathar the priests saying, speak to the elders of Judah, saying, why are you the last to bring, back, uh, bring the king back to his house, since the words of all Israel have come to the king, to his very house? You are my brethren, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? Despite the fact that David realizes... That God still wants him on the throne. He, He recognizes that he needs the elders. He needs the people to willingly follow him. Because if he just takes the throne back like Absalom did. Even though he was the rightful king of the throne. The king of Israel he recognizes there's just going to be another war if he takes the throne by force. He wants the people to be willing to follow him. So he sends this message to inspire this willingness so that people choose to have him as a king. So this is point number two. The king desires willing followers. The king desires willing followers. These are the type of followers that King Jesus desires. He doesn't assume the throne of our hearts. He doesn't do that. He woos us, his spirit moves inside of us, he he calls us, but he waits for us to invite him to sit on the throne of our hearts. As he says in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. (laughs) Jesus isn't kicking down doors in our heart, he's knocking on doors and he's saying, I want to come in, I want to have a feast with you, Uh, I want you to be willing uh, to make me your king to sit on that throne, but I'm not going to force it, I'm not going to make it happen. Jesus doesn't force anyone to follow him. In fact, he's okay if you decide not to follow him. Yes, that breaks his heart. But let me show you something. In John chapter 6, Jesus said some tough words here. Give you some context. Um... He told the people to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Okay, so they're like, "Uh, "Cannibalism? That's kind of weird. Okay, that's not in the Levitical law. What is this?" Um, So it was hard for them to respond. They didn't get it. He was talking about relationship. He's talking about communion, that koinonia, that sharing of life with Jesus. And after he said these hard sayings, look what happens in John chapter six, verse sixty-six. From that time, many of his disciples went back and back and walked with him no more. So many of his disciples, the people that were following him, following him after he said these hard sayings, they decided I'm not following Jesus anymore. Look what happens. Verse 67. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Says disciples, I'm not making you follow me. I want you to be willing to follow me. I'm not going to force it. I'm going to ask you to do hard things. I'm going to say tough things to you. I'm going to give you hard truths. And you can either take it and chew on it or walk away from it. He says, hey guys, the 12. Do you want to walk away through it too? Is this too hard for you to grasp? Is this word too hard for you to receive? Simon Peter says in verse 68, he answered him. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He doesn't say, where shall we go? He says, to whom shall we go? He says, I recognize you have the words to eternal life. The disciples, at least the 12, responded in the way that they should have. They recognized they weren't forced to follow Jesus. Jesus wanted them to have willing hearts. And that's what the Lord desires for us. He wants those willing hearts. He doesn't want obligated hearts. He wants us to be willing to follow him. David knew this as a king. He needed willing followers. He wasn't a dictator. He wasn't forcing people to follow him. If they wanted to follow him, they could. If they didn't, they didn't have to. So he starts with the elders of Judah. I want to reread verse 12. He says, You are my brethren, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? David used wisdom in this message he used wisdom in his approach to appeal to these men this is point number three the king uses wisdom the king uses wisdom so first of all he appealed to their pride by saying this look back at verse 12 why then are you the last to bring back the king meaning nobody brought back the king yet he says, don't you want to be the first? <laughs> don't you want to be the first tribe that recognizes that you guys were in the wrong? <laughs> that Absalom wasn't the rightful king and that I am? So he appeals to their pride. We all want to be first, right? So he appeals to their pride, but he also appeals to their relationship. They're of the same tribe. David's from the tribe of Judah. So he appeals to these men in a way that would sway their hearts, as we'll see later. But there's also something super significant with this. See, the issue started with in Judah, okay? Judah was one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Absalom appointed himself King in Hebron, which is the same place that David was appointed king when he was first appointed king over Jerusalem. And that was in the region of Judah, in one of the cities that the tribe of Judah had in their territory. So it was in Hebron, it was in the area, the territory of the tribe of Judah that Absalom appointed himself king. Not only that, if you remember that, that, that really wise counselor, Ahithophel, right? Everything he said was like the oracles of God. He was so wise he ended up killing himself he was wise that was obviously a bad decision but that guy Ahithophel he was from Judah too he was also from Judah not only that Amasa you remember the commander of the army of of Absalom's army Joab was the commander of David's army Amasa we'll see him here in a second verse uh, 13 Amasa was the commander of the army that was going after David he's from Judah too see David's using wisdom he's getting to the heart of the issue He's getting to the root. He's getting where the problem started. He knew he needed to address the root of the problem to really solve the problem. And the root of the problem, well, it started in Judah. See, this is what the king does in his wisdom. He always gets to the root of the problem. He gets to the root of the issues. He doesn't waste his time with symptoms. He he gets to the heart of the matter. That's why it always says throughout the Gospels that Jesus perceived what was in his heart, uh, uh, or perceived perceived what was in their heart, or he answers people in such a way that he doesn't actually answer their question, he answers the heart behind their question. And this is what the Lord does with us too. He doesn't waste his time addressing symptoms in our life. He gets right to the heart of the issue. This is the real problem, and if we really want the symptoms to cease, then we've got get to the root of the sin why are these things going on why are there these problems why are there these conflicts some of you have heard me say this before but it's applicable so you know when you have a cold you get symptoms right and your nose starts running right so if i have a cold and my nose starts running and i grab a tissue and i blow my nose what am i doing i'm addressing the symptom i might have relief for a little bit But the cold's still there, okay? If I want to get rid of the cold, I gotta take like antibiotics or something to kill the cold. But so often, this is what we do in our spiritual walk, we address the symptoms. Addiction is a symptom to the problem, okay? Adultery is a symptom to the real problem. The things that we do, the things that we commit, Are all symptoms of the real issue. And it's an issue of the heart. And those issues can look very different. But sometimes we spend so much time addressing symptoms. And we're just wiping our noses. You know what's going to happen? Maybe that symptom goes away. But now you got another symptom. Now I'm achy. Now whatever. I'm tired. I'm fatigued. But until we get to the heart of the issue will keep addressing symptoms over and over and over again. That's not the wisdom of the king. The wisdom gets to the heart of the problem because he knows if he's going to bring a solution, he's got to get to the heart. Second Samuel chapter 19, verse 13. And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not the commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab. So, David, not only does he appeal uh, to the pride of the people, you want to be first, he appeals to the relationship, I'm part of the tribe of Judah, but he also appeals to their fear, okay? He, he says, okay, I'm going to appoint Amasa king, or sorry, uh, commander of the army. Uh, why does he do that? Well, They know Joab well enough that if Joab is still the commander of the army, these people are dead people, right? Joab doesn't play games. Anyone who rebels against the king, he takes them out. So David, he appeals to their fear and says, hey, guess what? I'll put Amasa as the commander of the army, which seems like kind of foolish, right? He's like, that's the guy that was trying to kill you that was leading the other army. But there is a reality that there is some wisdom in it. He's trying to bring unity to the nation. And if he has the commander of the other army uh, on his side, then he gets all the people that were following that commander. And if he chooses to go after that commander, guess what? They're still in a civil war. So he's trying to use wisdom. He's sucking up his pride. He's biting his tongue. And for several reasons... He says, I'll make Amasa the commander of the army. This was also probably to get back at Joab for killing Absalom. There's probably something to that as well. The text continues. Second Samuel chapter 19, verse 14. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. So he swayed the hearts of all these men, the elders of Judah, along with Amasa. And what was it that swayed their hearts? It was a message. It was a message from the king that swayed the hearts of the people. It's a picture of the gospel. It's the message from the King that sways the hearts of the people. It's the message of Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection, His death for our sins, His resurrection solidifying His identity and also His death that God truly allowed Jesus to pay the debt that we deserved. And when that message comes attached to the power of the Holy Spirit, hearts are swayed. These men, Their hearts, they were swayed so much. So it says that they had the heart of one man, David, through this message, through his wisdom. He unified the nation once again, at least Judah. Okay, this is point number four. The king brings unity. The king brings unity. The elders in Amasa... weren't as worried as they previously were. David, he took care of their worries. Okay, Masi, you can still lead elders. You don't have to worry about Joab going after you. You don't have to worry about me going after you. You have a place in the kingdom. You you still have a place in the kingdom. And he knew he had to give them a place in the kingdom for there there to be unity in the kingdom. See, Jesus, he's also purposed to bring unity among his people. In fact... So much so, that in John chapter 17, the night before he died, he prayed this. In John chapter 17, verse 21, he says, or look at verse 20 for context. I do not pray for these alone, saying not just his disciples that are with him presently. He says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. It says, you know how the world's gonna know that you sent me? By the disciples looking like they're one. By the body of Christ being unified. That's how all will know that you are my disciples. That's how all will know that God sent Jesus when people see unity amongst the body of Christ. When they see unity in the church, that's what Jesus says. They're going to believe the gospel when they see love among you. When they see unity among you. So he prays this prayer. And if there's any prayer that God must answer, it's the prayer of his son. See, God desires unity. But in order for there to be unity in the kingdom, there's got to be what? There's got to be forgiveness. There's got to be reconciliation. Let's think about David. These people were out to kill him. They were after him. Absalom wanted to take the throne. Absalom's gone, but you still have all these other rebels living in the kingdom. And David could have gone, hey, hey, I'm going to kill God's people or I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to reconcile with them. It's either reconciliation or it's more division. It's more war or it's forgiveness. It's one or the other. We can't have it both ways. Has anyone ever wronged you? Betrayed you? Abandoned you. Has anyone ever tried to kill you? Uh, you don't have to answer that. They're trying to kill David. Have you ever let someone that betrayed you, someone that, that wronged you this bad back into your life? Now, I'm not saying that everyone that wrongs you deserves to be back into your life. There's a reality that we have to use wisdom with whoever we bring into our life, whether a friend, family member, whatever the case may be, there's just certain people that we shouldn't be in fellowship with. But my point here is looking at Forgiveness and reconciliation. David, though these people crushed him, they broke his heart. The people that he loved, the people that he cared for, the people that he risked his life for, for so many years they rebelled against him. But David, in his wisdom, he recognized in order for there to be unity amongst God's people, he had to forgive God's people. He had to reconcile with God's people. He knew something. What's that? It's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. It says, love covers a multitude of sins. He he recognized that. These people right now, they're not in need of discipline. They're not in need of judgment. They're in need of forgiveness. They're in need of love. And for love's sake, I'm going to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. He wasn't holding on to bitterness. He wasn't holding on to resentment. If you're holding on to, to bitterness and resentment in your heart, against anyone, but especially against another believer, then you're preventing God's people from being unified. You're preventing the Lord's prayer from being answered. You are. If you're holding bitterness and resentment in your heart against other believers, you're the reason that Jesus' prayer can't be answered. That's sad, right? And we all struggle with that. We all have situations that come up. Every one of us has been wronged. Most of us have been betrayed. Some of us have been abandoned. Maybe one or two or maybe none of us have been somebody tried to take our life. But there's a reality that if we truly want unity among God's people, it starts with us. It starts with us pursuing forgiveness and reconciliation. It doesn't start with us waiting for the other person to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. So David, he takes it upon himself. He pursues forgiveness with these people. He reconciles with them. And the people respond. Verse 14. As he unifies these people. He says, return you and all your servants. So the people invited David to sit back on the throne. This is exactly what he wanted, right? We talked about it. The king wants willing followers. And because of this message, because he appealed to them, because he loved on them, because he forgave them, this message of love, this message of forgiveness, it brought the people together, but it also brought the people to this place of willingness that they were inviting the king to sit on their hearts. It's a picture, again, of the gospel. They wanted David to be their king. When we really get the gospel, when we understand the forgiveness of Christ, we understand that the debt that he paid, the, the the meaning of the message we too will not be able to help, but having that willingness to ask him, to invite him, to sit on the throne of our hearts where he belongs. Second Samuel chapter 19, last verse we'll get to tonight, verse 15. Then the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. The king returned. And this is the fifth and final point. The king will return. The king will return. Just as King David returned, King Jesus will return as well. See, Jesus already came in his first coming. And he came to bring peace As the Prince of Peace, he came as the suffering servant. He he came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But when he comes again, he's going to come as who? He's going to come as that triumphant king. He's going to come as the Lion of Judah. He's going to come and judge the world. He's going to come and deal with issues. He's going to come and deal with conflicts. We see the Bible talk about the second coming all the time. But in Revelation chapter 19, also in Zechariah chapter 14, when you study those passages together, because they do absolutely coincide, when Jesus comes back, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives, and it's actually going to split. And he's actually going to go and fight against the nations that have rebelled against him and have rebelled against Jerusalem, and he's going to wipe them all out. He's going to come with the sword. He's going to have the Antichrist and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire. We can rest assured that Jesus is going to come regardless of all the chaos that goes on in our lives, regardless of all the craziness that goes on in this world, we can be confident in one thing. When everything else in this world is changing, we can be confident in what? who Jesus Christ is and what He said. And He said He's coming back. He is going to come back, and He's going to come back, and He's going to deal with issues. He's going to come back, and He's going to deal with conflicts. He's going to come back, and He's going to deal with disputes. He's going to come back, and He's going to deal with sin. Eventually, He's going to make all things new. He's going to come back. He's going to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He's coming back. However, until he comes back, we have a chance to make things right with them, to be all that he's called us to be. We're just buying time and we don't know when that time's up. We don't know when the Lord is going to come. He says, I come as a thief in the night. Our life is but a vapor. And we look at the reality of the fact that Jesus is coming back. It should produce something in us. Because when he comes back, he's going to be looking for something specific. And this is where we'll close. In Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, verse 6. He says, Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? says, he's coming. But he's going to find when he gets here. Is he going to find the faithful? Is he going to find the rebellious? There is a reality that he's going to find both. He's going to find those that are faithful. He's going to find those who are rebellious. But it doesn't matter what somebody else is, whether they choose to be rebellious or they choose to be faithful. It matters what we choose to be. Are we going to be the faithful? Are we going to be those that are raptured before the tribulation Are those, are we going to be those who faith face the wrath of the lamb? See, the king is going to return and he's going to deal with conflicts on this earth. We better not be a part of the problem. We better be a part of the solution. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths in your word, God, we thank you that your word is living and powerful, and it changes us from the inside out. And uh, Lord, we just pray that that these. Um these scriptures that we discuss tonight would really resonate in our hearts and we would really think about these things. It, it wouldn't just be another message that we hear that goes uh, in one ear and out the other, Lord, but it would impact us, God. And I just pray, uh, Lord, that, that you would help us live these things out, that we would recognize how great of a king that you are, that you offer this message of, of peace and forgiveness and reconciliation and love and you desire us to respond to it in willingness. So you don't force it down our throats, God. Lord, so we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we look forward to you coming back. In Jesus' name, amen.